I'm not despondent about this. I have great hope because I already know all of you have already taught your kids and grandkids a bunch of useless nonsense that they embrace as gospel. They follow your teams. They love your hobbies. You've already transferred your interests to your kids. You just haven't transferred this to your kids. So it's like you already know how to do this. It's just a matter of will you do it. That's Jay Warner Wallace asking the question, what can we do to do a better job of transferring our faith to our children? Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. What I'm about to share with you is a fun and insightful conversation about Gen Z with a former cold case detective and a man who was an atheist for the first 35 years of his life. Jay Warner Wallace is also a dad, a former high school youth leader. So it's an interesting mix in his background that gives him some great perspectives on the younger generation. My purpose here on Refocus is to help you engage with others and share God's grace, truth, and love. And that includes the younger generations. If you're a parent or grandparent, I know you'll love this discussion. There is so much here for you as you think about the cultural challenges uh, our youth are facing and how we can reach them for Christ. Trent and Troy had a chance to meet Jay Warner Wallace. Those are my two sons. They loved it. They thought he was super cool. I spoke with Jim Wallace in Dallas in front of a live audience who were very engaged throughout the discussion. In fact, we had a very long Q&A time as well, and you'll hear that in this episode. Jim is co-author of the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, with Sean McDowell. And as we jump into the conversation, I asked Wallace about the drift away from training in evangelism and apologetics in the Christian community. In fact, you and I had a conversation about the loss of the art of apologetics and the fact that people seem to shy away from giving a case for Christ. And is that happening? How are you measuring that? Well, I found that surprising because when I first became a Christian, that's how I became a Christian. I just looked at the Gospels. I, was not, I wasn't raised around other Christians. I was in Southern California. And you were 35? I was 35. Yeah. And we already had kids. Susie and I were together probably about 18 years already by that time. So we walked into this church for the first time, and the pastor provoked me to think maybe something more about He said Jesus was super smart. And I thought, oh, really? Let's go see how smart Jesus is. So I bought a Bible. <laughs> Didn't want to spend a lot of money. I bought a pew Bible. It was $6. I opened that little pew Bible and I started reading through the Gospels and I realized well, what first provoked me was that the Gospels don't line up perfectly. If you've probably noticed this, there are differences in the way people give accounts. And when I saw that, I said, ooh, that's exactly what you see in eyewitness testimony. I don't care if the event happened two hours ago. If I give five of you together to tell me what happened, there'll be a level of variation. So that's very affirming similar. thing. Yeah, that was an affirming thing for me. So I thought, let huh. me test these Gospels. Well, there's a template we use in criminal trials to test eyewitness um, statements. It's in the California jury instructions. So I simply used the template from the California jury instructions, and I tested the Gospels under four parameters. And when they passed, I told Susie, I think this is reliable. I think we, this is, but I, I still didn't understand what the Gospel was. But I was at a point where I was willing to entertain it because I realized that the accounts were, were passing the test yeah. of reliability. So that's really how I became it. And I thought, doesn't everyone become a Christian this way? Uh, and, no, and, actually. <laughs> and, and apparently not. Now, that surprised me. So years later, um, I was, I'd speak around the country. I would ask people, why are you a Christian? And these are the three answers I got 
almost always in this way, in this order. The first is I've, I was raised that way. My parents were Christians. I've been a Christian my whole life. I was raised in the church. That is the number one answer when you ask people, why are you a Christian? The second is I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. Either I prayed a prayer for something I needed. um, uh, I saw God move in my life in some way. I've had an experience that demonstrated Christianity is true. Those are both good answers. The third is kind of like the second. Um, You know, I used to be a jerk. I got saved. I'm not so much a jerk anymore. I've, I've been transformed in some way. That's not a bad answer either. Now, those are the three most popular answers. Is the fourth, I was a jerk, got saved, but I'm still a jerk? Yes, I hope so, for my sake. <laughs> Maybe that's where yeah. uh, come as you are, but don't stay that way yeah, would no, apply. I, yeah, I'm actually hoping that's for me. But, but so I, the reason why this bothered me, that those are the three top answers. You know, I don't have any Christians in my family, but my dad has a second wife who's uh, LDS. She, was, she raised her family Mormon. So I have half-siblings that are raised Mormon. So I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time around Mormons. And if you ask a Mormon, why are you a Mormon? Guess what their top three answers are? I was raised in the church. I've had an experience of the Holy Spirit that demonstrated for me that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God and the book of Mormon is true. Or I've been transformed in some way. They're the exact same answers, folks. Hmm. This is also the reason why Muslims are Muslims and Buddhists are Buddhists. I mean, you don't think those systems are true, yet your answers are the exact same three answers. So my question is, like, how do we differentiate them between a sincere experience, which is evidence, but it's untested evidence? Mm. So how do, you, how do you complete that case? So when people ask me, like, can you tell me your testimony? I usually say, I could, but to be honest, my testimony doesn't matter, and neither does yours. What matters is, is this true? Because we all have some story to tell. It doesn't make it true. And boy, we yeah. are in a culture right now, you know, Jim, that yeah. that is how truth is determined. It's lived experience. We know better in every other sense of what truth is, that that cannot be the only determiner of truth. But when it comes to our religious beliefs, that almost always is the only determiner of truth. So that's why I think we are where we are in the church. And that's why I think this is, let's put it this way. We're in Dallas tonight. Okay, there are people in this room who are, for what, I have no reason, I don't know why they are, but they are cowboy fans, okay? <laughs> oh, man. Seriously? Okay. Get, get security. Okay. So, Dak Prescott, do you think that Mike's going to make him a better quarterback next year, taking over the uh, offensive coordinator responsibilities? Do you really think that's going to happen, seriously? Maybe it will. I'm a Prescott fan. I hope it does. Here's my point. Everyone in this room has got an opinion about it. You actually have studied more and are better prepared to communicate why you think the Cowboys will do well next year then you are ready to prepare to defend your own faith. Not these folks. These no, folks no. are ready. I'm preaching to the choir. But yeah, what I'm saying is, Good. but what I'm saying is that's true for most of us though. In other words, we do a better job of passing on our fandom to our kids than we do to passing on our faith to our kids. And we don't have to think about it. We don't think about well, what are the five steps I need to do to make my kids a better cowboy fan. It just happens organically. <laughs> Yet we, not we, in Colorado. Not in Colorado. It's no, more like not. the Bronco fan. That's right. But let me let me dial this uh, back a little bit because I want to go back to the label that you had as an angry atheist. Because mm-hmm. I think that gives such uh, I don't know credibility to your story. The fact that you were on the other side of the track, so to speak, uh, you were antagonistic. Obviously, when you, that pastor said, you know, Jesus was the smartest person who ever lived, and you were like, yeah, prove it to me. Speak to that angle of being that angry atheist, and ha- most people would 
think that was very difficult for you, it had to be, to jump to this faith position because you're such a concrete, obviously kind of show me the facts kind of guy. Well, it was, it was, okay, so I hate, I don't think I'm, a, I'm an angry person necessarily. I'm sarcastic. Not, not I'm, now. I'm sarcastic. <laughs> so, so Susie would say to you that, that before I became a Christian, I was probably like a cynical, uh, and I was angry at people who would uh, kind of stand on their faith without being able to defend it. So when, when, when atheists say to you that we, we um, don't believe that God exists and we hate him, it's not that we're making a contradiction. You can't hate something that doesn't exist. What we really mean is we don't think God exists and we hate the fact that you think he does and you're trying to jam it down our throats. That's how I was thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not upset at God. God doesn't exist. I'm upset at people who think God exists and are trying to jam that down my throat. That was my view. And the people I knew at work who were Christians, they really couldn't defend their faith. They were no more evidential than anybody else I ever met. And the people I met who I was taken to jail often would tell me they were Christians. That happened a lot. Mm. I mean, I, I remember... Um, These are the criminals. Yeah. I mean, I, watched, <laughs> I worked on a surveillance team for years. And I was working on a surveillance team when I got saved. And I remember taking a guy to jail after I watched him do a bank robbery. Okay, that's our job is to watch guys do, do stupid things. Um, and so we're, we're, I'm watching this bank robbery. And on the way to jail, he tells me he got saved the week before. And I'm, it's in the back of my car, and I'm thinking, okay, there you go. That's, that's it. So that's why I was out. I had mm-hmm. no interest in it. Um, but, it but here's what comes. That's why I say I'm not a Christian because it's popular, because it's not popular. I'm not a Christian because I was raised that way. I wasn't raised that way. I'm not a Christian because I had an experience that changed. No, I'm a Christian because it's true, and I'm stuck with it. And I'm glad it's true. I'd rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. So I, I'm stuck in this, this place where, hey, this is what's true. And what's great about this is if you ever, the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And it describes us the way we really are. And if you want to know how to flourish as a human, you could either study all the sociology and all the psychology, all the researchers that have done the work, or you could read scripture. Because it turns out scripture predicted what sociologists are discovering today and why this is such an important ministry, focus on the family. Because it turns out that under every metric by which we study human flourishing, we do best when we are married, and in this marriage, together, two biological parents raise their children in a low-conflict setting. That is the key to human flourishing. And as we see marriage mm. fall apart, we are going to see, don't be surprised, this is going to be a growing problem in culture. It's because we are abandoning a worldview that describes the world accurately. Yeah. Well, and it's so necessary today because it is convoluted. It's upside down. It's uh, Timothy 3. You know, right. and you read Timothy three, and it's talking about children hating their parents, and good being evil, and evil being good. I think many of us, as we talk about the world that we survey, it seems like we're in that spot right That's now right. that you can't even define what a woman is. That's right. Well, I always say it this as way. a culture. Yeah, I think that I, this is how I've been saying it, and I felt this way for a long time. Is that the gospel cures every kind of stupid you can think of? <laughs> okay. <laughs> And whatever the stupid is you're thinking of right now, in terms of how the culture is going sideways, in, in our own marriages, in our own lives, uh, what we see our kids doing, whatever the stupid category is you're looking at, and I look at all the crimes I'm working, these are all people doing stupid. And it turns out the gospel addresses every version of stupid you can think of, and, and it's the cure for every version of stupid. So, so I, I think that in the end, I want to be part of a worldview that um, actually knows what's true and... That's so good. I'm thinking of one eight hundred cure stupid. There you go. I'm already working on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, we can. Yeah, for sure. You got to start that. 
I think it'll work. Um, you've written this great book, so the next generation will know. So let's let's talk about okay. youth for a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, your research has revealed five important discoveries about the spiritual decline among the youth. I mean, there's something happening here, and we need to be aware of it and understand why it's happening. Yeah, and I, so I, I even brought notes, because I'll tell you, this is a moving target. So this book is about Gen Z, and it, it seems like we can, we can take a picture of any group, and it's really a, an overgeneralization usually. So I can say, okay, this is what Gen Z is like, and to be honest, you might meet somebody in that category that is nothing like this, because I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, which we have to do statistically, right? So I, I'm constantly keeping track of these things, and I'm writing them down, because I see this as a moving target. I don't think we would have predicted what our views of marriage would have been 20 years ago today. Like, I don't think we could have seen this coming. I don't think we could have seen what our views of gender were going to be five years ago. So when you write a book like this about young people, you better be somebody who takes a lot of good notes. So I've kind of brought my notes with That's me. That's excellent. Okay, all right. So I wanted to share with you what I'm seeing in Gen Z. And here's how I got started with that. Um, Susie and I got saved, and we're at a church, a big church, and our kids are like eight and six-ish or so. And... Um, they were in children's ministry. And we would sit in children's ministry with our kids because it's a big church, and they didn't want to go in by themselves. They would go with us into the big church, then sit in children's ministry. And we're thinking, this is not helping them. Let's just, every other week, you'll sit with the kids, or I'll sit with the kids, and the other one will go to big church. So, you know, if you're in a church like this, and you're sitting in children's ministry, it's not long before someone says, hey, you need to work in children's ministry, you know, because we're there every week. You're so good with the kids. Yeah, oh, yeah. I said, we don't know anything. We're brand new Christians. That's okay. We got curriculum here. All you need to be is one week ahead of the kids. We're thinking, okay. So we volunteered. So then that, that, devolved, that developed, right? I started seminary shortly after that. So then I was asked to take over the like middle schoolers. And then I was asked to be a youth pastor. And so now I'm doing high school youth. I'm working full time uh, doing cold cases. But I'm also serving as the youth pastor. This was a really fun set of years for Susie. Let me tell you, I was never home. So, so we're doing all this work together. And I'm noticing what's happening with high schoolers. And I'm kind of keeping track of it. And I started keeping track about this about 1998, 99. And I've got statistics on our website that go all the way to every survey that comes out about young people. I collect it. I give you a synopsis of it. And I'm studying it like everybody else just to see. And most of my work is with high schoolers even today. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, a detective as a Sunday school teacher, as a 13-year-old. Well, okay. You, you think maybe that would be good, right? But so my background is weird enough. I, I came up in the arts. I have a bachelor's degree in fine art. And I've got a master's degree in architecture uh, from UCLA. <laughs> And so that's and so my first entry into this, uh, you know, I, I work as a detective, but a lot of it's visual, uh, trying to make cases visual for juries. Um, so when I started working with high schoolers, I was focused on the visual aspect of that Sunday experience because I came out of the arts. I did that for a year, and these were amazing. Ask Susie; these were like crazy events every Sunday. It was a visual experience, and after one year, all of those kids left the faith. They went to college. Their friends told us only one continued to be a Christian. Wow. And I said, okay. By, and we're talking like by the Thanksgiving break of the freshman year in college, I was hearing from the friends who were younger, oh, so-and-so is no longer a Christian. You see Berkeley, he's no longer a Christian. I said, whatever we're doing, we stink at it. We're not doing this anymore. 
and we flipped it. And I started, I went back to everything that, that I examined when I first became a Christian, and we just taught Christian case-making worldview from that point on, and the transformation was dramatic and immediate. And that's really why we wrote this book, because we learned so much about that train wreck of just following the arts entirely, and flipping it to really think, thinking clearly about why is this evidentially true? And that's when it all changed for us. And here's what I'm seeing in young people, first of all. You already know it. If it's not your children, it's your grandchildren. And I can tell you, Susie and I are not grandparents. And if you need me to prove it, I've got 650 photographs in my phone from the last two <laughs> weeks alone to show you that my, I'm a grandparent. I have two Zers, so I'm looking forward to this. 22 go. and 20. Okay, so, so here's what I would say about this. Uh, a couple things you already know. Number one, these are digital natives. So I'm not a digital native. I came to this late. We are all digital immigrants, okay? These are digital natives. They've been here all along. They don't know a life without that digital media in their hand. And that changes things. So just, you, you already kind of know that, but it does change. This is why I try to take a visual approach with my students, because I know that the greatest compliment I can get in a church service is when a parent comes up to me and says, hey, I just want you to know for the first time in weeks, my kids did not look at their phone during the church service. I'm thinking, okay, that's the goal. The goal is, I know that's the tug of war. And because they're digital natives, they are uh, really good researchers. Yeah. And almost anything that we might have said in the past that would, would have felt like it was authoritative, really, well, do you have the blue check by your name online? <laughs> then you're not really that authoritative, are you? So they're, they're digital researchers, and they, they have kind of um, falsely embraced what appears to be authoritative online. And it used to be that there was some, look, right now, everyone can get a blue check on Twitter. There's no longer like a criteria involved in that. So, and what creates a digi a, a authority online, like why do some Instagram influencers have the blue check and some don't? This does not mean they know more than your parents, but it sure feels that way, I think, to students. I, can I give you an example of the research side? Mm -hmm. So my 22-year-old Trent, I was giving him the speech that nothing good happens after midnight. And he said to me, do you have empirical data to support that? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, then I went, yeah. no, <laughs> but it seems right. Yeah. He, yeah but no, that's exactly. how they come back that's to exactly you. That's exactly how they come back to you. Yeah. I think also with digital media, it makes us incredibly impatient. So I noticed, for example, if I was to show a picture on the wall of, uh, or I just, just to type the word cheetah, and you saw that picture on the wall, that would just, you'd know what I was talking about, a cheetah. But if I show you an image of a cheetah, that's more compelling. Well, if I show you a video of a, a cheetah running, that's like, whoa, those things are fast. Here's what I noticed. I could show that video, but if it goes more than about five or six seconds, everyone's like, okay, enough already. We are so, the, the, we have become so visual yeah. that a video doesn't even hold our attention past, past, it better do something new. If it's just the same cheetah running for 10 seconds, I'm already checked out at five. We are becoming more and more impatient with, let's put it this way. Um, if you were to watch like Gone with the Wind, and you've got a scene, and it's Jim and I in Gone with the Wind. Well, it's going to be camera. Jim's going to talk. Then the camera's going to angle back to me. I'm talking. Okay, that's not how we feel now. We don't even use tripods. It's like some movement. Then it's you talking to me from the back of your head. It's me looking at your expression. Oh, it's like we have 18 scene cuts in the exact same conversation that we never had before. Why are we doing that? Because we are so impatient that I don't think anyone wants to sit and look at my face for that <laughs> long talking. They have to see me from every angle and your expression and background stuff and B-roll and all this other stuff because we have really shortened our attention spans. And this is just true of young people. Now, just, like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be the old man who says, get off my lawn. 
I'm just telling you this is the way it is. It's, that genie's out of the bottle. That's not going back in. We have to learn how to navigate with that genie out of the bottle. We can't ever get that back. I think also because we're watching this we are, and we're seeing this technology is that we are multitaskers. We are visual multitaskers. And, and you know this already, right? If you go to a restaurant now and you see two people eating, they're going to be doing a lot of things simultaneously. They're going to be texting while they're talking. There's more conversations going on than you probably think. And so we, we have really, we, it's, it's hard to understand what, I don't know about you, but in my age, if I'm not paying attention to Susie, she'll let me know it. <laughs> but I don't think that's necessarily true for a Gen Z. I don't think that, that they feel that the distraction is actually an offense. It's just part of what it is to live now, to have that kind of multitasking environment. So, so true. I, but to take it differently, I, I, I'm not going to get as offended if it's somebody who's 20 who's taking this approach. This is just the way it is. She, and that person, my daughter, who's in her 20s, is probably hearing every word that I'm saying. I'm thinking she's not paying attention. No, she can multitask. So that's just a little bit different, right? Right. And I think also because we're exposing our kids to so much more online that they are much more fluid in their thoughts. Like what is right and what is wrong? It's a much more fluid dynamic. What's a family? What's not a family? It's much more fluid. What's a marriage? What's not? A because so many ideas are being presented with equal authority. And so that's why I think that some of the struggle for us is, right? Because right. we would say that there are some things that just aren't true and some things that, that are. That are absolute. Yeah. But they're much more fluid than we are. And a lot of that is because they have access to so much information that appears to be equally authoritative. And also, you know, let's face it, we have, we have kind of changed our notion of what, how we determine truth. The truth is, it is it's just a whole other conversation, but the distinction between what's objectively true and what's subjectively true and which of these two is actually uh, most important is a conversation we have to have with our kids because this it, it, is a very pluralistic, fluid environment in which it's going to be hard to lock down if all truth is discovered through your lived experience, then we're going to have a hard time finding any, com you know, any objective transcendent truth that we can stand sure. on. It, it, that is kind of where we're at today, though. I mean, no, I think I th we've I already think gotten to that point. When yeah. it comes to faith, and we're not, we didn't cover all five, no, but, we can't, yeah, but, but we're there. Yeah. I think we get an idea of the landscape. When it comes mm -hmm. to faith and the reason they're giving the Zers why they're not Sticking with the faith, what do you hear? Oh, okay, so that's something that you can collect because we actually do data on this, and there's two ways you can recover this kind of data. One is you can do a multiple choice kind of a, but then you're assuming you know why they're checking out, and they're just picking one of those. The best surveys are the ones that are just open. Tell me what it is that is giving you a problem. Tell me what it is that you're reluctant about. Now, this is changing so fast, I think, honestly, that I can only give you a snapshot and I don't think this, I think if we took, did more studies in the next two years, we'd find different kinds of answers. I'll tell you what, in the last, say, five, it kind of looks like I've collected the statements. So these are actual responses in surveys in the last five to six years. But I think it's changing. And I'll, I'll tell you how I would add to this. But I'll just give you a couple of these. Um, when people say, well, what, what, is, what is your problem with Christianity? Why did you, why are you no longer a Christian? That's the question we all have as parents, right? And grandparents, like, why would you leave? Well, a lot of it is just simple responses about having a problem understanding how we can believe in anything supernatural. Some of this stuff, quote, is just too far-fetched for me to believe. Or there are just too many uh, questions that cannot be answered by the world by the worldview. I'm a scientific, scientific person. I believe that science is authoritative, and I don't uh, know how you can believe in miracles. Those kinds of questions are all part of it. It's like one person here says, because I grew up and realized it was a story like Santa or the Easter Bunny. 
as I learn more about the world around me and understand things I, that I didn't used to understand, I find that the thought of an all-powerful being is less and less believable. Okay, that's, that's really about reasoning toward, is this a reasonable conclusion? But that, I think, is shifting quickly under our feet. It, it used to be that, is there a God, is the question. I think the question now is, is this good? In other words, rather than make a case for why this is true, it's like, I just don't think I want to wear the T-shirt. Hmm. I don't think I want to be identified with this. It's an identity issue. And I'll bet you if you're to survey in the next five years, you're going to find that a lot more of these answers are going to be identity-related. Look, if this is a worldview I have to adopt to estrange myself from all of my friends, if you're going to say that, that people I know who have different gender identities or different sexual lifestyles or different kind of lifestyle preferences, and I cannot love and accept them as equal to myself, I can't be part of that group. So I really think it's about the goodness of Christianity that's going to come under attack as we go forward. And, and by the way, we already see this, right? You're seeing this online. The way that we're going to minimize Christians, Christianity's impact on politics, for example, is going to be to make us look foolish, um, to make us look evil. So it's the goodness of our worldview that I think is going to be the bigger attack. And, and we have the parents have to help our kids see that. And I think that leads to the other question I had in that regard with so much working against what we see in younger people, what's the hope that we see in them? Right. Yeah, well, what do you see that's well, a, a, you know, a good look, thing? Yeah, in the end, what's, here's what here's, here's what I want you to get, get comfortable with something. This, we're not in a desperate state, okay? These are still our kids and we can still reach our You kids. don't know my kids! Yeah, no, I know, kidding. right, right. <laughs> here's what I would say. Um, the, the problem is real, too, in the sense that it's happening pretty fast in front of us. So here's what I always, the parallel I try to draw. Imagine this table is we're sitting in a round table. It's about, what, four feet wide. Imagine this table is the entire country. That's America, okay? And on this table is a tablecloth, but not like the one we have right now. It's a smaller tablecloth. It doesn't even cover the table. It only covers about 60% of the top of the table. It's like a big doily, okay? So that, that really, so the table is America, everyone in America. The doily is what, who are still claiming to be Christians. These are people who claim to be Christians. And that doily is getting smaller by about a percentage a year. And those people are not, they're jumping off the doily into the table. Um, so the table is growing. Now, they're not necessarily becoming atheists. As a matter of fact, the atheist group doesn't seem to be growing much at all. But they are now, they would say, they, they have no affiliation with organized religion. When they ask, what's your religious affiliation, they check none. So we call this the growth of the nuns. These are people who are no longer part of this. But they're not saying they don't believe in a supreme power or a divine being. They're just saying they don't, they don't find anything in the palette of religions that they would uh, affiliate with. Does that make sense? Okay, so now you see the doily is shrinking. Now, what's interesting is we can panic about that and say, well, Christianity is shrinking in America. Okay. But it turns out if you were to survey the doily and ask, well, what does it even mean to be a Christian. Not that I think all of Christianity should be a litmus test theologically, but if you asked, what, what does the death of Jesus have to do with anything? A lot of Christians would go, well, you know, I'm not quite sure I can answer. I don't know much about penal substitutionary atonement. I don't know much about why Jesus... They just don't have answers for those questions. Well, if you look at that group, that's like having a, a cup on the doily. Only a small percentage of people who claim to be Christians have any idea what Christianity even claims. That cup is sitting on the doily, and that cup really isn't shrinking. 
So we've been watching the doily shrink and say, wow, look, look what's happening to Christianity, when in fact, the doily may not be Christianity. It may be people who have identified as Christians but never really knew what they believed anyway. The cup was always the church, and that cup is pretty stable. So what we want to do as parents is make sure that our kids are in the cup and not the doily. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. So that's what we're really trying to do. But there's hope in this for me because relax. The church, look, Jesus said a long time ago, some of you are saying you're healing in my name, doing these miracles in my name. I'm going to tell you I never knew you. That means if you're doing it in my name, you're calling yourself Christians, yet you were never in. You were going through the wide to destruction, not through the narrow. So it turns out this has always been this way. It's always been that there's a subset who actually are Christians, and the rest are just going to say they are. We just want our kids to be discipled well, and that's something we can do. And also, remember this. Those who are jumping off the doily, they're now a people group we can reach. Now, it's a little harder because they are post-Christian. They're not pre-Christian. In other words, it's not that they know nothing about Christianity and just need to hear it. It's that they've already heard about Christianity and they've left it. That's a harder group to reach. But here's what's good about them. They already believe there's a higher power. They just need to be reminded of why this is both true and good. You know, I, I've, I've always tell Susie it embarrasses her, but I love her because I think she's beautiful. She's smart, but she's good. And that's what keeps that power for me is that I just know she's all. Well, I want my kids to know that Christianity is beautiful and smart and good. So that's really the goal, I think. No, it's really good. And let me ask you, too, with the Gen Zers, um, it seems that with all the research, the two things that they're expressing to those researchers is they feel overwhelmed mm -hmm. and they feel very lonely, even with all the social yeah. media connection. But they're not having human interaction in the same way either. Right. Well, there's a reason why we were designed as three dimensions. Look, Christianity has a high value for three dimensions, right? It's not that we're going to uh, eventually go into heaven and we're going to remain as uh, spirit, disembodied spirits. <laughs> no, we're going to be given a resurrection body. Like we, There's something about our design that requires this kind of three-dimensional proximity. And any step away from that reduces the relationship. So, so you know that uh, I can be misunderstood if I'm just texting Susie, that two-dimensional word. But if I call her, I can be better understood but then she can't see my facial expressions. If I can get in front of her, she gets the whole three-dimensional aspect of me, and now she can understand what I'm saying best. So while these other things are, are good proxies, they, they don't replace three-dimensional interaction, because <laughs> we are designed for that, and Christianity holds that three-dimensional interaction in high regard. Otherwise, we would not need a resurrection body. Well, I think God himself said he created us for a relationship. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and this is the other thing, too. I, why do these kids feel this way? Well, Christianity explains this. You, look, at if you're a Muslim, Allah does not know how to love until he creates the being he will then love. In other words, you could say that Allah is the source of love. You could say that Allah learned to love. or But you cannot say Allah is love. You could say that about Yahweh, though, because he's triune from all eternity. He's always been in the loving relationship of the triune Godhead. So you don't say that, that he's the source of love. It's that he is love because he's never been anything other than in that loving relationship. And that's why when we get created in his image, we need look, every level of flourishing in terms of fitness, in terms of happiness, comes back to relationships. 
And why is that? Because you're created in the image of the one God you mm -hmm. can say has always been in a relationship. When you look at some of the adjectives describing the younger generation, let, let's touch on those because I've, I've been actually encouraged. I mean, they tend to be people seeking authenticity. Yep. They, they really do sniff out hypocrisy. Yep. And then they do want to stand for things that seem to be doing good. Yeah, this generation I think is even more. So isn't it funny how we will sometimes look at the generation before us and whatever the struggle is in that generation, we end up reacting to it. Do you remember, what was the sitcom with Michael J. Fox in it? Uh, family Ties? Yeah, Family Ties. Wasn't that the one where he's the conservative like teenager and his parents are like the, well, what do you see happening there? You see one generation is always reacting to the one that comes before it. So I do think that after the crash in 2008, I think you see a lot of young people have seen their parents or seen their older siblings struggle. This is a, a, a good work ethic uh, group. It's the, the largest group. So of all these generations that are coming up, Gen Z is a huge group of people. So you're going to see a lot of impact from Gen Z because they're just going to outnumber us because they are a large group. So it's something to think about. And yeah, they are saying, they love, you, why would you be surprised in the one generation that, that is seeing so much ridiculous Instagram falsity <laughs> that they would be um, interested in authenticity? I mean, I don't, think, I, when I, was, I don't think I was ever exposed to so much inauthenticity as a kid, right? Because we, I mean, we didn't have those kinds of social media platforms where you know the person, but look at how he looks online. He looks great <laughs> online, but you know this person in reality. I think we can, our, our detectors are a little bit more. No, I'm laughing. I think, isn't there some ab app you can put on your stomach? Yes, I know. So, yeah. <laughs> Talk about inauthentic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's just I, funny. Well, you know, there's all these filters. Everything's got a filter to change. This is why I look like 15 years earlier. They have these, now these young filters on, on, on these platforms to make you see your earlier age of yourself. My whole point is the Technology, I think, has driven us toward um, a desire to see what's real. And that's where I think parents and grandparents, we still can play in the game here. Because it turns out that what I see happening is, and I used to sign books at the book table, and I have parents would come up to me and they say, hey, can you sign a book? Maybe it's a book that makes a case for the reliability of Scripture. Can you sign a book to my 22-year-old daughter? She's no longer a Christian. And this started happening years ago. And I would always say, I can sign the book to your daughter. She's not going to read it. But if it'll make you feel better, I'll sign a book to your daughter. But it turns out what, what, what connects the dots for young people, for anyone, is information connected to relationship. It's information in relationship. And I get it. She's like, I don't have the information I need. But you have the relationship. I have the information, but I don't have the relationship. So I'm just nobody to her. You get the book and you read it. Because then you'll have both of those things, information and relationship. Mm. And that's where I think it's so powerful. So I'm not, dis I don't, I'm not despondent about this. I have great hope because I already know all of you have already taught your kids and grandkids a bunch of useless nonsense that they embrace as gospel. They follow your teams. They love your hobbies. You've already transferred your interests to your kids. You just haven't transferred this to your kids. So it's like you already know how to do this. It's just a matter of will you do it? Yeah. In that context, though, you know, when the kids, especially uh, 18, 19, 20, they go off to college, they're getting a lot of worldly information. And you mentioned, you know, so many of them in that mm -hmm. first semester start to pull away. And what they're hearing in college classrooms puts doubt into them. So what's the art of when they're home for the Christmas break? 
And now you're having the debate about evolution or some other aspect of something they've learned in that first, second semester of college. Temperamentally, as a parent, how do you go about absorbing that and still influence them? Okay, so a lot of you have kids who are that age. And um, so what I'm about to say me, I don't want it to be a, a buzzkill, okay? <laughs> but okay, was, I think you just are setting us up for a buzzkill. Yeah. So, so here's what I hear people, it's changed, right? So when I was a youth pastor, we were still in a couple, first couple of years of the technology that now is so prevalent. So I, we started doing this, what, 15 years ago? My kids are 34, 34, 32. So this is a long time ago. And, and what I think has changed now is that you are not meeting the first objection at your university in your freshman year. You are meeting the first objection the minute your parents give you the glowing rectangle. If they're going to give you the glowing rectangle, you're going to be introduced to every aspect of doubt that you can possibly imagine. Mm. So where you might have said, hey, we want to do apologetics and worldview with high schoolers when they're seniors. Really? No. You need to do apologetics and worldview with 7th and 8th graders because those are the years that you're giving them the phones. Or somebody else has given their friends a phone, so they're going to be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. So they need to know earlier. So that's why when we started writing kids' books in, in apologetics, we, we targeted 8 to 12. Because uh, that, that age range seems like that's when you have the most influence on your kids. You'll notice this, right? Like a, a, the difference, like a, a group of sixth graders, fifth graders, let's say. Why would Satan do this this way? That's what your, your Sunday school teachers are talking about. Why would Satan do it this way? That's when they're in the fifth or sixth grade. By the time they're in the seventh grade, the question is, why do you believe there's a Satan? That's a different question. They're already out. <laughs> they're wondering why you're still in. So that's why I think we have to start earlier. Mm-hmm. So I think we got to rethink all of junior high in terms of, of classic kind of Christian education and think about where is it we're going to teach reasonable thinking, how to make proper inferences from evidence, and why is this evidentially true? I've got a 32-year-old, and he doesn't mind me saying it because he's said it publicly a number of times now. He's a doctor. He works as a pediatric anesthesiologist. And super smart kid. He was in biochemistry before this, and he will tell you, I've had him on my class at Biola, there was a season in college, an undergraduate, where he was kind of checked out from his Christian faith. But because we had spent so much time all his life growing up talking about the sciences, and as a biochemist, he knew he could not explain DNA without intelligence. He knew there was no way around that. He said that single thing... He knew he could, it's rubber band theology, right? You can pull, you can get away just so far, but it hurts when you let go of the rubber band, right? If you go too far, it hurts even more. So you don't want to go too far for the snapback. So he stayed close because he knew, just from all the time we'd spent in, in his junior high life and in his high school life, that there, this was true. He always said, yeah, I knew it was true. So I, I knew I couldn't go too far. And now he's, he's, I'm getting ready to podcast with him because I think his journey is important for other people to hear. Absolutely. we got to start really early. And here's what I would say. Raise the bar, folks, because your junior hires are capable. Look what they're watching. They're capable of high school or college-level material. Your junior hires. We discovered it by accident because my kids would not sit in their affinity groups. So I had like a five- and a seven-year-old sitting in high school ministry with a like a 13- and an 11-year-old. They were all too young to be in high school ministry, but I was a high school pastor now, so they stayed in with me. And everything they learned, everything that David learned, he learned while he was still in elementary school listening to what we were doing with high schoolers. These guys can do it, so raise the bar. 
you're already doing this. You've already got like international baccalaureate classes, AP classes, you got tutors. Like you're spending more time and effort with volleyball coaches than you are with their spiritual development, okay? So this is the way we are, right? If your kid can hit, he's, you got him in you got, you got training, you're playing off-season baseball. This, we're spending all this time and energy, but this is the area we need to spend it. It's time. a great wake-up call for sure. Let, let's hit this at the end here and talk about what people, what young people are really aching for in their heart. You mentioned identity a moment ago. So you, you want to ask them or answer, help them answer the question, who am I? Oh, absolutely. Why am I here? Yeah. Right? Those are the key questions. And then what are some of the things that are competing for their hearts? I think we've heard that, but we've really got to drill in their identity in Christ. Yeah, so I, here's what I would say. If you look at how we form identity, I, just want, I, I don't need to preach negatively against the way other of their friends are forming their identities. I don't need to do that. I just need to be positive about how we do form identity and let my kids figure it out for themselves. There's only three ways to form identity, only three. And they have historically been applied. The first way is an outside-in identity, and that's where we get our identity from a group that's around us. That used to be your family name or your tribe, or maybe it's your occupation. We are carpenters. This is outside of me. I'm part of that group, so I assume the group identity. It's an outside-in approach, okay? Now, the problem with that is a lot of us don't feel like we're very good at this. I mean, what if you're the worst carpenter in your family? You don't feel like that's, I don't even want that. I, I'm terrible if I take that identity. It has limits, and people are unhappy sometimes when they take an outside-in approach. They sometimes feel like the square peg in the round hole. The other way is what I call an inside-out identity. It's that I feel in my heart I am X, therefore I am X. The problem, of course, is that your heart is fickle and deceitful, and it changes all the time. And, that, and every time you have a trauma in your life, I'll guarantee you, it also parallels an identity crisis. Oh, I'm divorced. I'm no longer married. Oh, I'm now retired. I'm no longer a police officer. It's navigating your identity changes that is so traumatic for us. And if you're making your identity from an inside-out approach, you're navigating your identity over and over and over again with your fickle heart. And we see trauma because of this. The third way to form identity is what I call a downside-up approach. And that's where I look up for my identity in Christ, the one stable, unchanging, transcendent marker that if I'll put my identity there, I'm not going to go through those peaks and valleys of identity crisis. And that's where I think we have to kind of help our kids to see. You, you can do it one of these three. There's only, there's only three ways to do it. Have at it. I'm just going to tell you, of those three ways, one will give you the stability and long-term happiness that you're looking for. The other two will change every few years. Yeah. So that's why I want to focus on, and it does come down to relationship. Look, I am Jay Warner Wallace. You know why I'm Jay Warner Wallace? Because I have a grandfather named Warner. And I want that relationship. He's been dead for years. But it's relationship that changes everything. And if you think that, you know, I'm not a grandparent, I'm not a parent anymore. Well, it turns out, <clears throat> sorry. It turns out that I only remember my grandfather when he was probably in his 60s and 70s. Like I didn't know him well enough before then. Everything I want to be is from hanging out with a guy who was in his 60s, 70s, and 80s. Don't think for a second you don't have impact on your grandkids. 
These are the decades when you are going to have impact. These are the ones they're going to remember. When I was 10, I don't remember my grandfather. When I was 17, oh man, he changed my life. So just, just know that you have a role to play still. And it is about relationships. Absolutely. You've mentioned relationship many times. And I think this is the key question for those parents that perhaps there's a breach in that relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, they have tried the intellectual approach. They have somewhat hammered their child who maybe wasn't receptive. Right. And they were behind the curve because they weren't sure what they were battling. Right. The junior hire that became the freshman, that became the senior. How would you suggest those breaches be repaired relationally so that their hearts might open up? Well, first of all, forgive yourself. <laughs> Look, guys, no one's made more mistakes than Susie and I have. You know, we can sit up here and talk like we have some authority. That's ridiculous. Trust me. No one has stubbed their toe more times than Susie and I have on this whole thing. And if you knew me at 34, you would say, that dude is never going to be a Christian. Hmm. So if my kid's at 34 and he's not all the way in, I'm patient because God's going to do what God's going to do. I never thought for a second anything I really said is God's just using what I'm saying, but it's not me doing anything. It's all God using what little I can present. So I, I just have to trust. And so we still pray. We pray a lot about our kids. Our kids are all grown and out of the house. You still pray for your kids, right? I guarantee if you've got five kids in this room, if one of you got five or six kids or four kids, three kids, your kids are on a spectrum. There's some kids who are more in this in and some kids who aren't. Maybe they're all really committed believers. There's still a spectrum, though. Some are more in than others. And if they're not believers, then some are less atheistic than others. There's a spectrum in your kids, even though they came out of the exact same house. So just be patient with yourself. I think the biggest problem is we think we got to fix this. We, we probably can't fix it. It's probably something we have to trust God for. Right, And so we had to go to God in prayer. I just think we were so hard on ourselves that then every time we see our kids, we're like, okay, i, I got to do these five things today. Or, well, you're making it worse. Very formulaic. You know? yes. We start to think, I've got like these five things I can do in this meeting. And we do this too. Like, you know, I want to make this state. And then it never, it feels kind of awkward. And you just make a mess of things because it's, it's hard for us to trust. But play the long game. Mm. I will say one thing, though, before we end, that will be helpful with your younger kids, Okay. I, I always say this, this is the one thing if you get from me tonight, this is probably the most helpful, and that is this. I think kids need two whys for every what. Two whys for every what. And what we have a tendency to do is to do a lot of what's. Here's what's true about Bible. Here's what's true about God. Here's what's true about Jesus. What, 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 what. That's fine. But our kids need two whys for every one what. So the first why is, well, why is that true? So I'm talking about God or Jesus, but I think it's fair for me to tell you why I think that's true. And I'm probably going to do a lot more than just because the Bible says so. That's going to be part of what I say. But a lot of it's going to be, well, because and I know the Bible is telling me the truth because of these three reasons. I'm going to give you a why for every one what. But the second why is probably more important. First is the what. The second is why is that true? The third is another why. Why should I care? Okay, that sounds great for you old guys who like theology, but why do I care about that? Why do I care about the triune nature of God? Really? You know why you're miserable right now on social media? Triune nature of God. That's what it is. It's that you are feeling this tension because you are a relational creature built for relationship in the image of a relational God. And you are never going to be able to escape that. And so theology has consequences. 
like John Stone Street, or, or, you know, my, yeah. my mentor always says, you know, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. It's very true. So we have to really be uh, careful about how we make sure that we don't just tell kids what is true, but we help them to understand why it's true and why it should matter to them. Yeah, so, so good. One of the other things is I've heard Christian leaders say this, and it really, I've thought quite a bit about it, and it's gotten under my skin a little bit when we talk about, you know, this next generation just doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, what that. The way I'm hearing that now is, God didn't really prepare for this and that yeah. the people he's chosen to live in this next generation, well, he's come up a little short, according to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a pretty prideful thing to think about. Well, I think this is this our nature, our age bias. So, so my, my, my co-writer on this book is, is a great man named, named Sean McDowell. He's Josh McDowell's son. And I hate to even say he's Josh McDowell's son because Sean is, is awesome on his own, he right? Is. It wouldn't he matter is. if he was Josh's son or not. But, but he, always, he always starts, he'll ask the audience, and I've, we've done this a number of times, where he'll say, okay, I want you to, we're talking about Gen Z, give me some words to describe Gen Z. And, and people will say, you know, if I asked you, what are some words about Gen Z? <laughs> Can you describe Gen Z for me? Just throw out an, a word, a, an adjective for Gen Z. Throw one out. Selfish. Selfish. Okay, what else? What else? Entitled. Entitled. Okay, go ahead. Impatient. Impatient. Okay, go ahead. One more. Just one more. Distracted. Distract. Okay. Lazy. Okay. I want you to hear those five words. Now, the people we're trying to reach, what did you just say about them? You don't think they hear those things? You don't think they get that from us? And this is the problem, is that when I ask you for five descriptors, the first five you think of are all desperately negative. Negative, negative, negative. And then we're going to reach this group? And by the way, if I had asked this 30 years ago, it would have been the same thing. Different, different adjectives, but it would have been equally negative. This is our age bias. We do this consistently, and then we think we're going to reach these kids. Look, I'll say this. I keep on saying it's last thing, but I'll say one more <laughs> thing about this. You remember, I remember this, when I was a younger father... I never got to see a movie that I wanted to see. I saw every lousy G-rated movie. I, I, I hated it. This must be the angry atheist this coming is, yeah. out. And then I never got to go to a restaurant that I want. You, made, you didn't go to the movie you wanted to go to. You made compromises to do what's right for your kids. You didn't go to the restaurant you wanted to go to. You made compromises to do what's right for your kids. You didn't go to the vacation you wanted to take because you did what was right for the kids. When we have kids and we're raising kids, we make sacrifices because we know we're in a season of raising kids. Folks, the church is raising kids. We've always been raising kids. You're in the church. You're raising those kids. It's time for us to make us. Oh, but I don't like that kind of music in the worship service. Really? I, dude, I'm already in. The worship music could be terrible. I'm still, not, I'm still in. But if my kids don't, I, I, you're making comp, it's time to make compromises. You do this as a, in a season as a parent all the time, and now I don't care who you are, with kids or without kids, if you're in the church, you're raising kids. We have to make a similar sacrifice. Wow, that is interesting information from Jay Warner Wallace, and we have a great Q&A session with him coming up next. So stay with us uh, to get more wisdom from this guest. Uh, the book by Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell is called So the Next Generation Will Know. 
There's a lot more advice in it to help you reach out to Gen Z for Christ. Uh, When you make a donation of any amount to Refocus to help us produce content like this episode with leading thinkers, we'll send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for being part of the ministry. This is a nonprofit outreach to impact lives for Christ. I hope you appreciate that goal, and I hope you'll get behind us to support more conversations like this one. Let's listen now to the Q&A time with the live audience we had in Dallas. Yeah, hi, my name's Layton. Hi, Layton. Um, cool question. So I am a newlywed. I've been married almost a year. Um, my husband and I really don't feel like we started our marriage until October. He was in the Marines for eight years, and that's when we kind of started our foundation. Um, so as we are entering into our marriage and kind of figuring out Um, the steps and foundation we want to lay, what's some things we should be looking out for, some words of encouragement as it's just us right now, but we're looking forward to having a family soon. Mm. Why you go first? Well, no, I I was thinking of what you said a moment ago, which was kind of forgive yourself and relax. I'm seeing it focus on the family, just so many parents that beat themselves up Mm. because the formula isn't working. So they expect if I do A and B, I get C. And nothing is formulaic. Uh, I think God may have felt like I create Adam and Eve. I create A, I add B, I get C. I mean, not even the Lord got what he wanted out of the creation of Adam and Eve. And that should take a little pressure off of us. But at the same time, you want to do things that are predictable. So instilling faith into your kids, et cetera, and doing the things that, that Jim's talking about. These are predictive steps that help a child, a teenager, a 20 something, have a better chance at opening his or her heart to the Lord. Yeah, I love this topic. Um, so I'll just, a couple things that, and Susie will slap me when I'm said too much. So um, I, I say this a lot when we do uh, marriages, we do weddings. Um, I want you to love marriage more than you love your husband because I love marriage more than I love Susie. And I love Susie. Hold it, here she comes. She's going to slap you. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that there'll be days when you're not getting along. But I love marriage. Uh, My parents didn't. My parents divorced when I was three. My mom never remarried. Um, It was terrible. And I won't do that to my kids. I love marriage. You know, Dr. Laura, the... the, It's really good. Dr. Laura always says, you know, choose wisely and treat kindly. Those are the two things. But sometimes we don't always choose wisely. Suck it up, buttercup. Treat him nicely anyway. Honestly, I love marriage. Even if I, even if I made a poor choice, I would still love marriage. It's, it's a principle of the matter. If you love marriage, you will do whatever it takes. I don't want just a marriage. I want the most vital. I want, the kind of, I want a storybook marriage. I love storybook marriage. So that means I have to make an effort to keep this as storybook as I can because I love marriage. So if you love marriage more than your spouse, that's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is, we always talk about is marriage 50-50 or is marriage, you know, it's 100-100. No, it's actually 100 to zero. So what I do is I try to, I, I, I want to give her 100%. I expect zero back. She d- sees that in me, and she's like, oh, no, you're not going to outdo me. <laughs> and then she gives me 150% and expects zero back. And because we expect zero back. So in other words, if I'm having a bad conversation and this is going sideways, I'm just going to stop it and follow my, I try to follow my sword immediately because that's between me and God. How I treat Susie is between me and God. How Susie treats me is between her and God. It's not between me and her anymore. There's Jesus standing in the gap. So I just, it's a hundred to zero. Now, 
I say this, and she'll tell you if I'm effective at it, of course we're going to fail doing this, but that's the goal, right? The goal is give it, give your all, expect zero back. He should be giving his all, expecting zero back. Um, I, I think it was, was it Chris Rock, we saw a, a recent clip, we use it, we do marriage counseling, and he's talking about, hey, this is, you are no longer created equal in a marriage. You are there to serve each other. You're now in the service industry, he said. He says, it's like you're members of a band, and sometimes you get to play, you get to sing lead, and sometimes you're playing tambourine. And when it's your turn to play tambourine, play it well, because no one likes a grumpy tambourine player. <laughs> and I thought when he said that, I thought, oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. So those are the two things I, I think. And what you're touching on there is selfishness. It is. And it's probably one of the hardest things for us to replace with selflessness. Yeah. yeah. And I even mean, when you say, say this, I know that I'm saying this arrogantly as though I do this well. I don't do this well. Nobody does this well. But, but this is why right. I think we are shaped by each other, right? And we become the person we're supposed to be through all these failures. So yeah, there you go. Tough answer. Love him 100% and expect nothing back. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. But That'd of course, when, I, when you say this, let's be honest, there are times when that can be abusive. I'm not suggesting you should allow abuse. Right, of I mean, course Because it can happen. I'm, listen, I'm a cop. I see a lot of that. But, but I think, honestly, when you have two Christ followers who are really dedicated to the Lord, that is a good strategy to take. Mm. Next question. Hi, John from South Lake, Texas. Go Dragons. Uh, <laughs> Go Dragons. Yeah. Dragons. Mm. Um, so you, you mentioned the compromises parents make, and I, as an adult, was able to find out that my parents actually made a compromise for me. They went to a church they did not like, but had a really good youth ministry, and actually that started challenging my faith in the seventh grade. So by the time I got to college, it was like, what do you mean that tripped you up? That's a, such an easy question. Yeah. Um, so, but my question always coming now, because you talk about those, so what are the top compromises we need to be making as we go home? So if a parent mm. takes his way, what's the top three? What should they be thinking about compromising right away? I think most of the time we, we compromise when we get tired, right? And we're like thinking, ah, oh, this is a conversation I don't want to have right now. Or maybe we should just turn on the TV and watch something mind-numbing because we're all tired at the end of the day. And it's that we're not really going to engage in conversation, right? You know, when I, when I, okay, but I'm, I'll tell you this. Whenever I arrest somebody, and I did this for years, used to drive my partner crazy, and we're getting ready to do an interview, I would always buy my, my suspect and me dinner. And we'd walk into the interview room, and I would put the dinner on the table, and we would eat together. <laughs> now, my partner would say, I'll buy him dinner, but I'm not eating with him. I said, no, 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 dude, you got to eat with him because that's – Meals are so important, right? So sometimes our compromise is just that we get so busy and so tired that we start to do the small routines. We start to minimize the small. We do this too, right? I got to get this kid to a practice. I got to get this kid over here. And we stop doing family dinners. That's such a simple thing, family dinners. But that is where, if you look at scripture, some of the most important conversations God ever has with humans, he has over a meal. So some of the most important conversations you're going to have with your kids, you're going to have over a meal. So it's just little stuff like that. It's about, well, what am I willing to talk about in the car? Like you're listening to music. Those are opportunities to talk. Worldviews are displayed in media. Whatever you're watching is teaching a worldview. Are you willing to stop and talk about it? It's not always easy. It takes a special effort to make that, that conversation even interesting. And where we start to compromise is that we say, ah, maybe next time we'll talk about it. 
Hmm. So I think a lot of it is just that when you get tired, that's when you're going to find yourself making the compromises that affect your parenting, I think. And I know I was really guilty of this. We just did Legacy Box. You know what that is, right? You take, you take your old – back, believe it or not, when I was growing up, we had a camera. We would record video. It was the size of a VHS machine on it. It had a lens on it, okay? And we would take these huge VHS tapes. We just had them all converted to digital. And I'm watching my kids, and we're in a living room. And this is some random evening, and I'm watching the difference between Susie's parenting and my parenting. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's like I want to erase that whole thing. Just get rid of it. I was terrible. I was exhausted. Clearly, tapped out. I think you probably got four words out of me that night in that one video. <laughs> she is animated. She's playing with the kids. I, why she stayed married to me? I don't even know. If you watch that video. That's where you start compromising. Is that you get tired and you start to say, okay, well, Susie can take this part of it. You start to kind of step back. It's I think like that's really what it over comes here. Yeah, that's what it really comes down to. It's about just when you see yourself getting tired, it's meals, it's conversations. It's those moments when you're teaching, like your marriage preaches, right? You, if you're all like, like we have two teams of everything in California where I am. Rams, Chargers, Clippers, Lakers, Angels, Dodgers. We got two of everything. And there are serious fans, and their families go to these games in paint, okay? They don't have a problem transferring that love and passion, and it's happening organically. So I don't think we have to like be like super structured about doing this, but if you're getting tired, that's probably where you're going to compromise. Yeah, that's good. All right, next question. Kim from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, earlier you talked about shifting the uh, youth program and going from more of a uh, experiential uh, kind of hype and you went into apologetics. Did you notice an immediate change? And it's kind of a two-part question coming because we have a 12-year-old daughter. So how did you see that change? Was it received well by the students at that time? How about their parents? How about the church staff themselves? And, and how did that transition go? Especially because we're involved with a, a private Christian school. And we see the same thing, not just from the church, but from the school. The kids are falling away as they go to college. Okay. Yeah, good question. Okay, so this, this is why we wrote the book, and the book's got some steps in it. So here's what we did. Um, I realized uh, early on that my kids don't get, if, most parents, when you bring their kids to a youth group, as long as you can keep my kids from having sex and using drugs before they leave high school, we're good. Just do that for us, okay? Just get my kids, you know, stop you know, smoking dope and skipping rope. Just do that, and we're good. The bar is pretty low, okay, for what parents want their youth pastors to do sometimes. So we said, okay, we, my thinking was, well, I need to teach them, I call this tab training, theology. I want them to know theology. I want them to know apologetics, philosophy. And I want them to, to behave properly as a result of what they know theologically and philosophically. T-A-B. Theology, apologetics, behavior. So I just developed a curriculum for myself around those three things. Now, how do you teach theology to your kids? <laughs> Good luck. It's like that Charlie Brown thing. You know, wah, 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 wah. They don't want to hear that. So here's what we did. If you want to teach theology to kids, you have to put them in front of a challenging heresy. So what we did is we would bring in somebody either to role play or a true bishop from the Mormon church, and we would have a, a day where the, the kids would be in, in our session, and we would have a little interaction. And at the end of it, it was ugly. They almost converted the entire room into Mormons. They could not defend any of their views, and they tried. 
and I just wanted, I just let him go. He just, he just convinced them all that they were, you know, that the plain and precious truth of Christianity was lost when the disciples died, and that Joseph came to restore the truth, and he had them all convinced of this. And they knew it wasn't right, but they just felt they couldn't defend themselves. So how'd that feel? It was lame, right? Okay, here's what we're going to do. In eight weeks, we're doing a missions trip, Salt Lake City. We're going to put you on the street at the Mormon uh, uh, temple in Salt Lake City. We're going to do some street evangelism. We're going to go to BYU. We're going to do some campus evangelism. We're going to go to Provo around BYU and do door-to-door -door evangelism in eight weeks. But you clearly aren't ready. And then we spent the next eight weeks training for that missions trip. We did it every June, second week of June, every year. Now, the reason why we did that is because you're just teaching, and teaching does not change anything. Stop teaching. It's a waste of time. The church has been teaching for years. We're still losing students. What's the difference? You're not training. Training's different. Boxers train. Why? Because they got a fight coming. Boxers get fat in between contracts. Then they sign for the fight. They get in shape. Why? Because I got a fight in six weeks. Get in the best shape of your life. Mm. Fights, challenges, calendared challenges turn teaching into training. So we would calendar the challenge. The challenge is that mission trip. We're going to be gone for seven days, plus two days of travel. It's about a 12-hour drive for us from where we are, to Salt Lake City. And we did this for how many years, Susie? We, I think we had 50 students the last time we went. They loved it. They loved it. And every, every day when we were out there in the field doing this, they would get spanked. Believe me, those folks see you as the lost people group, and they are far more ready to make a case for their faith than you are for yours. It's amazing what they're willing to do for a lie that we are not even willing to do for the truth. So every night they would come home to the, to the church we were staying in, and it was in uh, Salt Lake City, uh, and they would come home at that night after being on the field the entire day trying to convince Mormons that, you know, <laughs> trying to reach Mormons. And some of them would be in tears. They were so frustrated that they had studied for eight weeks. We had to make test, pass tests. They had to read books. They couldn't go on the trip. The bar was super high, and they still would fail. They'd be up all night long. At 2 in the morning, I'd say, go to bed. You're, like, just trust me. I've done this so long. You're going to get spanked in a different way tomorrow. You think you're soft? Just, you're going to get spanked every day. But they would finally go to bed. But that's why we did it, because it turned out that that now, on the apologetics side, we would take them for a week to UC Berkeley. Same kind of, and we would have somebody come in who's either a real atheist or a, someone like me would role play. So I would, if I don't know the group, I could go and I can role play. My son Jimmy is an excellent atheist role player because he sat in these for all those years as a kid. And he's young, he's attractive, he comes in, young girls love an attractive <laughs> atheist. <laughs> so he'd come in and he'd kind of jerk everyone's chain, and then I'd say, How'd that feel? In eight weeks, we're going to UC Berkeley, and we'd take him to Berkeley. Same kind of a trip. So it turns out what we did, and it changed everything overnight. Because when they came back from those trips, and then I, then I, I actually had to kind of size those down because too many kids wanted to go. You can only take so many kids. You probably need about a parent for every three kids, I would say, or so. And how big would the group be? So the group would be, if it's 50 kids, then you're going to need, you yeah. know, really you need about 12 parents for that. 
and then you got a lot of cars you got to drive. It's, it's hard to do a trip <laughs> like that. But my point is, if you, and so what we did was we took every other camp we used to do, and we're in Southern California, so it's all board sports. We had surf camp, snowboarding camp, wakeboarding camp. If you got a board, a skateboard, whatever it is, you're going to have a camp. Got rid of all those. We replaced them with our missions trips. And because I just realized at some point I felt like I was an entertainment, like I was like managing entertainment trips for these kids' friends. No, no, we're doing missions trips. And that really did change things. We would also do uh, a time on Skid Row. If you want to teach social justice, people need to see what homelessness really looks like. Instead of hearing what the media says it is, let's see what it really looks like. And how do we reach kids, how do we reach people this way? So, so you just start to calendar challenges. And if you calendar the challenge, you'll turn teaching into training. And we've written a couple of chapters on how to do that in here. Not, not that I'm trying to sell you this book. Uh, there's a great ministry online that'll help you with this. It's called Maven Truth, because my partner in this was a guy named Brett Kunkel, who's the brainchild of all. And this guy's brilliant. You want to see his work? It's at maventruth.com. And you can actually, if you think I can't do this right now, just get a hold of Brett at maventruth.com. He'll help you do it. Wow, that's good. That's great advice. Can I go with my last question? Okay. Here? Yeah. So we have a 12-year-old daughter. We have, uh, you talk about empirical data. We think we've all seen empirical data that says keep the phones out of their hands. Mm -hmm. Give us some glimmer of hope. How long can we expect to do that? That is, as parents, we're trying our hardest to keep that away from her, but you said it perfectly. You said they have a friend who's got a YouTube channel. They've got a friend yeah. who's got another device. How mm -hmm. do we gently ease her into this digital world that she's faced with? Why don't you give your kids cars? I mean, do you give your kids a car at 16? Or do you make your kid earn the car? I think what you could see, one way to do it is say, look, I, I can give you a flip phone. I can afford that. But if you want a smartphone, you got to be able to pay your own bill. And it's not my issue. It's, it's not like I'm trying to take this from you. It's just that I can't, I've got four kids. I can't do a four, I guess you could do a four phone plan, but it seems like it's kind of expensive. So, so maybe I'll just say, hey, tell you what, when you can afford to pay for it, when you've got a, that, that automatically put, delays it, not because you wanted it delayed, but because they did, right? They have, they have to pay for it. That's number one. I, I think number two is, um, it's interesting we're talking about empirical data. Who is the actress who does the credit card? She was just on Good Morning America. Yeah. Jennifer Garner. Jennifer yeah. Garner. Did you hear her answer to this? I thought it was brilliant. Uh, she said to her daughter, when you can show me the empirical data, that shows me that time on the phone is good for you to the extent that I can show you the empirical data that says it's bad for you, then you can have the phone. All you need to do is to show me that the data represents your view and not mine. <laughs> and, and I thought that was just brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we're all data hounds, this, and it's, it's true, I, I, I'm writing a book right now where I'm talking about human nature. The data that's out there right now in terms of social media use and well-being, there's you're not going to find anything to support the other view. Everything you, you find. And this, these are people who I think would like it to be true that there's no, hmm. that there's no impact. But you're, you're going to see that, that there's a hopelessness, loneliness, depression. All of these factors of well-being are much higher among people who use social media. And it's, why would you be surprised? I mean, it's good. It's, it's a constant comparison with the world around you. Yeah. All right. We'll go to you and then over to you. All right, thank you. I'm Stephanie from Keller, Texas. And first off, thank you so much. Um, I just love the way that um, you take the observations and make it simple for us to understand. And, and um, all the data is just amazing. Um, and you spoke about um, some things I thought was just wonderful, that the gospel is beautiful, it's true, and it's good. 
and how we need to have relationships with the Gen Xers and things like that to um, convey that message to them. So how do you how do you suggest doing that for you know like for our children? I feel like they've they've got that. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, we've got an 18 year old, a 16 well, almost 16 year old, and a 13 year old, and. Um, their friends come over all the time. We try to convey some of that, but I, we kind of see some of their friends, you know, might not be as close to the faith as maybe their parents think or different things like that. And we try to pour into them and we can pray for them. But how do you, you know, you mentioned building relationship. Um, how do you suggest doing that for them as well as people that we don't know as well? Hmm. Great, great questions. Um, this is a trick, right? Because love is, is so balanced, and, and you see it gets out of balance really fast. So if you look at the nature of God, you could define him basically as the one being that holds truth and grace in perfect balance. So when Jesus comes in John 1, he comes in the fullness of truth and grace. It's in perfect balance. Every admonition in Scripture is God speaking to us and saying, hey, guys, Knock it off. You're either not being loving enough, it's all about justice and judgment, or you're letting every knucklehead in who's saying all kinds of stuff, you're not being discerning enough. So you're not holding this in balance. So all of this is trying to hold it in balance. So there's the trick for us, is that love is not just all grace. Come on over for dinner. I'm never going to challenge you. No, it's, it's trying to figure out where is the balance in those two things. And that takes time to do, right? So if you have your friends coming over. Now, here's how I've, how I've been trying to say it. Rather than say, what if I, okay, so, so as a cop, a lot of times when I'm working in a case, I'm thinking, well, the best way to make this case in front of a jury is to concede to all of the defense team's uh, claims. Because even if, if what the defense team says is true, we still win. And I'll show you why that's the case. So then I've taken out the argument altogether. Uh, worst case scenario kind of approach. If, even if Christianity wasn't true, it turns out that if you were designing a false system that would help humans flourish, it would make all of the claims that Christianity makes. Because it turns out that every aspect of human flourishing is in Scripture. Do you know one of the most amazing aspects of human flourishing? If you didn't study the studies, you may never even assume it. Everything that happens to us, every crime that's ever been committed, it's driven by the same thing that has one cure. The cure for stupid, from a, just from a sociological perspective, is an attribute known as humility. If you just adopt humility, you'll have a higher educational level, do better on tests, you'll be able to discern right from wrong. These are all the atheist secular surveys telling us this. You'll make more money, stay married longer, have better relationships. Every level of human flourishing, it turns out that this property of humility actually changes the way we, we live. Mm. So what I'd like to say now is, look, I want, because I love you, I want you to flourish as a human. I want you to experience the most robust life you can possibly experience. I want you to thrive. And because I want you to thrive, I know the secret to this. It's on the pages of the New Testament. It's not, if, if, if for no other reason, I'm not trying to proselytize you into being a Jesus follower even. If all I wanted to do was to get you to thrive and flourish, I'd still say, here's the book for you, New Testament. Because that is what is going to help, make you, help you flourish. How are you going to choose your identity? Well, one way is going to give you a much more stable, longer, less traumatic lifestyle. Here it is. 
Oh, you want to know what, what kind of relationships you should have? Well, I can show you that that's also on the pages of Scripture. It turns out everything that we would measure and see this is what contributes to flourishing, that is a biblical principle. And you can deny those at your own peril. So it's because I love you that I want you to flourish. And this means we have to make certain choices. Like I said before, the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest indicators of flourishing in children is they are raised by their biological parents in a low-conflict setting. That means that every formation of family that does not involve two biological parents in a low-conflict setting is going to contribute to less human flourishing. Now, I was not raised this way. One biological parent. I didn't raise my family this way. I've got two biological sons, two adopted daughters. I think we did good for our daughters, but they weren't raised by their two biological parents in a low-conflict setting. So anytime we return to that model, kids thrive. Well, it just so happens that's a biblical model. So if all I was doing was aiming at flourishing, I'm still going to hit the target of Christianity. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I want to communicate it that way to the more skeptical friends that my kids have, or even my own skeptical kids. I want it to be, really, I'm concerned about your flourishing. Mm. We're going to aim at flourishing, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself in the ten ring of Christianity. That's good. Two, two questions left, and then we'll call it, so we keep going. Yeah, thank you, Jim and Jim. Uh, Steve and my wife, Lori Ann, from, from Oak Point, Texas, by way of California, actually. Excellent. <laughs> And uh, I read in your brief bio that, you know, you did not only adopt two daughters, but they're foster kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Terry knows, very, uh, you know, near and dear to my heart. And, of course, folks in the family is also, you know, looking to help more foster kids, which is great. So I'd just like to learn from yourself um, what some of the challenges were with those two girls, the foster girls. Because I actually helped some friends of mine with foster kids, and I saw it firsthand. Mm -hmm. That's probably why the Lord's put it on my, well, I know that's why the Lord put it on my heart. So sure. some of the challenges and, and victories and how you attained it. So the biggest challenge you have when you don't have your own biological children, there's a reason, okay, I think sometimes as Christians we, we think that there's no relationship between genetics and behavior. We don't, we don't want to admit that, that connection. And I think it's because we sometimes will hear people say, well, I was just born this way. And we'll say, well, no, you weren't. No, yeah, sometimes you are just born a certain way. You have a genetic predisposition. does not mean you're genetically determined, predetermined, but you're predisposed. Because we all have that. And when you have your biological children and one of your kids does something crazy, I would look at Susie and go, oh, he got that from you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or she would look a at that typical, and say, uh, yeah, comment exactly. from a oh, yeah, spouse. Yeah. I was trying to find a way. My dad one time said, I don't know how you can blame this on Susie, but you'll probably <laughs> find a way. So, so, so I would, you know, she would say, you got that from him. It's true. When we have our biological children, we will see behaviors that we then recognize. It's not that we just recognize them as our own. We actually understand the, the, the kind of the background as to why they're behaving this way because we have a biological connection. And that's why biological children thrive in low-conflict biological settings. And if you don't have that, I don't care if you're adopting or you're just have your, you know, uh, you, you've adopt, you are fostering, whatever it may be, if they're not your biologicals, you don't have that kind of innate connection. It's not about, well, I love my biology. No, it's about I understand my biology. And so because I have a better understanding of those behaviors, I'm, and I also know, well, I, I did the same thing when I was, as it often happens, because of this bio, genetic predispositions, you'll find yourself seeing your kids do things that you did as a kid. 
And so you have more empathy for your kids also because you recognize that's behavior you're seeing over the generations. So I think that's the biggest challenge when we're raising our kids that aren't our biologicals. It's as simple as that. Mm. And it took us, I don't know, what, 20 years to figure that out? It's like, I wish I had thought of that or recognized that earlier because it, I, there's a great, I forget who I, I said it to Susie, of, of a psychologist talking about how we have a tendency to think of our kids as blank slates. They don't come to us as blank slates. They come to us as, as genetically complex creatures who are borrowing from both parents and present a palette of, of behaviors that are driven by their biology. So he says a better model is a shepherding model. Not a creating, I'm not going to create this kind of a, a human. I'm just going to shepherd this genetic being because that's all I can do. He's not a blank slate. And once you understand that, you give yourself some grace, hmm. right? Because, because now I realize, yeah, I, that, you know, this is something I'm not going to be able to fix. If you think I'm going to fix this or fix that, you may not be able to do that. And you won't think, well, yeah, it's my fault. I didn't fix it. Well, no, you're shepherding something that has already got a trajectory of its own. That was such a good time of Q&A with the audience in Dallas with Jay Warner Wallace. He brought some powerful reminders about passing on our Christian faith to our children and to Gen Z, and also to build confidence in them to share their faith with others. Uh, Please stay with us, because for the Inbox segment, we'll hear one more great question from the live audience about helping biblical truth to stick in the hearts of our children. You know, looking back to the conversation, I thought it was a significant moment when Jim Wallace asked people in the room to share adjectives for Gen Z, and then pointing out that the first words that came to mind were negative. God is going to do a great work through this Gen Z community and future generations, but we don't want to be a hindrance by holding a negative view of who they are. And I have said it before, man, when we downgrade the next generation behind us or two or three down from us, we're basically saying God didn't know what he was doing, putting these souls in this place at this time. I'd rather say God knows what he's doing and he's got the right people on this planet at the right moment for his will. We need to see and love these young people as God sees and loves them. Refocus is about reaching across the cultural barriers and objections to the gospel and demonstrating God's incredible love to others. What else can we do if we listen and engage and show others the grace and forgiveness available through Jesus Christ, starting in our own families, the ripple effects will be far-reaching. Now, at this point in the episode, I usually take a recorded question for the inbox segment from you, the listener. But this time, as I promised, I have one more great question that came from the live event with Jay Warner Wallace about young people having a faith that sticks to their heart and not just to their heads. Let's hear that now. Good evening. Thank you all for your ministries. Um, We have an 18-year-old daughter. She's uh, an Aggie gigum. There you go. And I think what you all said about apologetics, we started kind of exposing her and training her in apologetics from about nine or 10 years old. And, you know, when she went off to college, she told us the only reason she's a Christian really is because of the apologetic training. So that's good, praise God. However, we were watching Sean McDowell one time, and he was interviewing folks that have deconstructed their faith, some uh, I think uh, musicians and all that. And one of the comments was uh, from the musician. They were saying that they were not sad at all when they did not become a Christian anymore. And Sean McDowell said that, you know, if it were him, he would just be devastated. 
And I felt the same way. I was like, if uh, it turns out that Christianity isn't true, I would just be so sad and devastated that the, you know, the relationship with God wasn't true at all, and I would just be so sad. And I asked my daughter, how would you feel? She's like, I don't think I would feel anything, which shocked me because I was like, okay, we have the bedrock of apologetics there. She's intellectually there, but she was emotionally not there, and I was wondering why. And I was telling her that I would be so sad because, you know, God, I, I don't think he's just real because of philosophy and history and science and all these things, which I, I believe it's true also based on my own investigation, but God was real in my life. I see him in the little miracles that are just too coincidental to just be, you know, it just happened mm -hmm. uh, when I happened to be praying for it at the time. So. There's many instances like that, but I feel like for her, she has not seen that. So I was like, so I didn't really know how to respond other than, you know, just be patient and keep asking. And like you said, Detective Wallace, you know, just, just give her time and let that relationship with God grow. But I'm not really sure what else to do or how, how yeah. else I can prompt and guide her in that. Well, that's, that's, that's very, uh, very hard. I get that question a lot because I think a lot of us as apologists can be kind of, you know, one side of your brain is activated, the other side is not maybe necessarily as active. So you have a tendency to have a more rational kind of view. Um, it's harder for me because I was 35 years old before I actually came to this position and I was a skeptical jerk coming in. I'm still pretty much a skeptical jerk. If you don't, to be honest, if you're going to be a detective, you have to be skeptical of people because you have to assume everyone's a liar. If everyone's a liar, someone's eventually going to go to jail. If everyone's telling the truth, no one ever goes to jail. So, so you assume everyone's a liar. That skepticism helps, and I'm still that way. But here's what I would say. I think we have to do more with our kids. If you're going to think about apologetics as this um, mission of explaining to our kids why something is evidentially true, we have a tendency to say, well, here's the history about the resurrection. Here's five arguments for the resurrection. What we don't often do is help our kids also to see, oh, see that right there, what you experience? That's God. So in other words, we, we have a tendency to make a case for God from ex things external to us and never relying on things that are internal because we mm. either don't trust them or we've been focused on these other. So I think it's a combination of having to do both, right? So, like, so, so I still struggle with this. I'm far more likely to call something a coincidence or a diagnosis or a treatment than a miracle. And that's just because I, I, didn't, spend, I, I didn't have anyone growing up that could help me to see that that might be God. Hmm. And if you're not God-sensitive, you'll walk by a lot of stuff that you could attribute to God that you won't because you're not God-sensitive. So I think that's a big part of it is along the way, can you help her to see that this, this thing she's experiencing also is not just coincidence. And, if we, and this is not too late for her to experience that. But here's what I would also say. Even though she may feel, and these people who deconstruct may feel like, oh, I wouldn't be set if I found it wasn't true. Okay. It would impact you, though. Oh, trust me. It'll impact your ability to flourish. You can't step away from the truth about your biology and how you were designed by a creator God and not be impacted in terms of how you will flourish. You might think it's not going to have any impact. Really? Do you have any idea the stress that people experience about fear of death? There's an entire uh, discipline right now in psychology called terror management theory. The idea is that every decision we make, according to these theorists, we make because we have a fear of death. It affects the way we act today, behave today, fear of death. And they'll show it now in study after study after study, showing what the fear of death does to us, how it in fact affects our um, optimism, how it affects our just things you wouldn't even think would have any effect on. 
And so this, I started collecting this data. One of the things I discovered is that people have less fear of death if they believe that their persisting self extends beyond the grave. And that's why some worldviews don't actually help your fear of death. Like Buddhism does not help the fear of death. Either does Hinduism. If you're a reincarnated self in the next life, you're not the persisting self you are. Now you're somebody else. doesn't help with this persisting self need you have. If, if you die and go in the dirt as an atheist, you don't have the persisting self. If, if you don't believe there is a self, you don't have a persisting self. I mean, some views of God and of theology do not provide for the persisting self in the next life. But those who believe there is a persisting self don't fear death. And they don't have the negative consequence of, of death fear. It's called death anxiety. They don't have a problem with death anxiety. So, so my, pro, my point is that even if she said, well, I wouldn't really, oh, it will. It'll affect her. Even if, if, if it's just the belief in an eternity, hope is another thing that affects your quality of life. And hopelessness is often driven by a lack of spirituality. People who are spiritual have less hopelessness. Any kind of spirituality, any kind. But if you happen to have religious beliefs, you have an even lower hopelessness level. Oh, and if you happen to believe that what we call a caring God, a God who actually is paying attention and cares about you, you are even more hopeful. Oh, and if you have a God you think you can pray to and you pray actively, you're even more hopeful. Oh, and if you have a God who offers salvation at the end of life, you're, so you see it's a certain kind of view of God that reduces your hopelessness and all of the negativity that comes along with hopelessness. So it turns out that even though she might think, well, yeah, I don't think I would think much about it. Okay, maybe not, but I'll guarantee you this. It'll have an impact because all of those aspects of human flourishing will be impacted by you dropping this worldview that was actually protecting you when you didn't know it. So, yeah, it has mm -hmm. an impact. That is so good. Let's give it up for <laughs> Detective Wallace. Now, if you have a question for the inbox segment, please send me a voicemail. I want the podcast to be interactive, a two-way dialogue. So if you have a question about how to engage others for Christ, maybe a family member or friend, I want to hear from you. Just click on the link in the show notes. And if you're a parent looking for ways to prepare your children for some of the tough questions that will come their way, check out a free video series featuring Natasha Crane called How to Respond When Your Kids Ask Tough Questions About God. That link is also in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. Tell others about it and like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have a fun conversation with Phil and Al Robertson of a &E's Duck Dynasty crew. We'll discuss some of the challenges in today's culture and point people to Christ as the ultimate answer. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're out getting drunk, high, tearing up stuff, dangerous. I said, your parents don't know where you... I, I said, why don't you just try following Jesus and you will reap benefits that was far beyond your thinking at this point. So true. It's the best way to roll. You'll hear that on Monday, September 25th on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. As a young teen, Mary became a follower of Jesus after reading Focus on the Family's Brio magazine. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't have that. I'd really like to know what that's about. And so it was, it was an inward decision 
right there that I made in my room after reading, you know, this article in the Brio magazine that I want to have that kind of walk with God that this girl is talking about. For 30 years, we've helped Mary grow in her faith. We've strengthened her marriage, and now we're equipping her to be a good mom to her own kids. Like, really focus in the family has been, and all the, the different resources and individuals, the voices of focus in the family, it's really been a mentor to me, to my family, um, and just it's cool to see the legacy. I'm Jim Daly. Working together, we can save more families like Mary's every month. Please call 800-A-FAMILY or donate at focusonthefamily.com slash family.